So next up we have Claire Mackay and she, her background is in uh, as an imaging neuroscience and I think she spent the last 10 years working in ageing and neurodegenerative diseases and she's now I think speaking mostly today about her role as the is it imaging informatics lead and in the Dementors Platform UK. Thanks very much Anya and Charlotte for organising this event and asking me to come and talk to you. Um, so as Anya said I'm going to talk to you today about a specific bit of work that's been done by many people working in dementia research over the last um, uh, 18 months, two years, um, and I hope I'll show you that things are really changing in dementia research, as Emma's nicely outlined already for us. And it really started for all of us when the Prime Minister made dementia its healthcare priority at the beginning of the last Parliament. Um, this sort of... Um, ended a, a long, long time of dementia being, as, as Emma's pointed out, radically, drastically underfunded compared to the burden that it, that, it, um, that it has for society. But it's a big problem, and part of the reason it was underfunded is because it's seen as a rather big, difficult, intractable problem. So if we really want, as a biomedical research community, to make a difference in terms of the impact of this disease, or this set of diseases that cause dementia, we need to crack two massive problems. The first is that we need to develop neuroprotective therapy. We need to develop ways of protecting the brain before the damage is done. That's a big problem in itself. And the second is that we need to identify the means to identify people for whom this um, intervention is going to be useful. And we're not going to be able to solve either of those problems unless we have a very dramatic, large-scale commitment to collaborative working, to open science, to cooperation. And that's quite a big change in the way that we as scientists and clinicians have traditionally worked. So um, I'm going to um, uh, underline something that Emma said, which is that there's a, there are roles for clever people in all aspects of translational neuroscience. So down at the bottom end of this matrix, you can see the sort of nuts and bolts, the, the, the means by which we understand the mechanisms of diseases, the genetics, the cell biology, the, the down the microscope stuff, the scary in the lab stuff. That's, um, that's beyond me, for example. In the middle, you can see the, um, the, the slightly um, higher order things like imaging and cognition. That's the sort of thing that I do. Um, and then at this end of the, of the translational neuroscience spectrum, as you might think of it, you also have the development of trials. How are you going to implement really good clinical trials, develop and implement trials? How are we going to turn the developments that come from further down the, um, the spectrum into really good diagnostic tools that really can be used at the bedside in your clinics, for example? And we need to do this across the range of different um, diseases that cause dementia. And a lot of it is also about understanding age, the normal ageing process and what this does in the brain. And so the, the, real, um, the real challenge was posed, um, uh, again, I suppose, in 2013 at the first ever G8 summit for dementia, which in itself was a real achievement, to have a G8 summit specifically about this set of diseases, where um, a declaration uh, uh, was that the, the, the G8 health ministers commit themselves to the ambition to identify a cure um, or disease-modifying therapy by 2025. That's only 10 years away. That's incredibly ambitious. But to do so, they're going to dramatically um, increase the amount of funding available for dementia research. So a very, very ambitious goal and some um, commitment to, uh, to more funding. 
And indeed, the amount of funding that was made available in the very next year was, was very different from any other year in dementia research. So this was a list of the funding opportunities that were put together at the beginning of 2014 and added up to something like 130 million, uh, including the 50 or so million that um, Emma outlined from the, um, that came from the UK government and, uh, and several more millions that came from ARUK. So we're getting there. We sort of, the things are going in the right direction, but there's still an awful lot of work to do. And this is what the, the kind of basic problem is. So this is a cartoon of what happens um, in, uh, in all diseases that cause dementia. You start off in a state of cognitive health, and then at some point you start to deteriorate, and in that, in that early deterioration stage you might be um, described as being in the prodrome of the disease, and as things progress further then you might be diagnosed with full-blown dementia. And the problem is, most of the trials, almost all of the trials that have ever been done in dementia are done at this stage of the disease. So once you already know that what the, what the status is of a patient, they've already been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease or whatever it is, and that's the point at which the um, disease-modifying trials have been targeted. There, there are millions, if not billions of pounds have been spent trying to uh, find treatments at this stage of the disease. And clearly, when you think about it like this, that's too late. The damage is already done. So we really need to be pushing back and doing the trials much earlier in the disease. But you can see the problem immediately there. So if you're trying to target your um, trials in the red zone, you've got much less of a signal to play with. You're not quite sure whether people have got the disease yet or not. And even if, you, even if they have, being able to tell the difference between somebody who's deteriorating and not deteriorating, you're dealing with a much shallower slope. This is, uh, this is something that changes over time. So we, the only way to solve that problem is to get better um, early diagnostic markers, and they're probably not single markers, they're probably combinations of markers that will give you the best chance of being able to see the signal early, and they have to be done in a large scale. It has to be done in, in large numbers of subjects. And so that was really the starting point for the Dementias Platform UK. So we can sort of set out the challenges in these three categories. The scientific challenge is that we need to go early and we need to learn rapidly. We can't just be reinventing each other's wheels all the time. We need to come together as a community and, um, and put, our, put the best brains that we have into action um, at the early stage of the disease. This poses a very uh, large infrastructure challenge. So the UK has invested millions and millions of pounds in cohorts like the Whitehall cohort that you heard about earlier today. But these cohorts um, and the 1946 cohort that you also heard about um, are not necessarily joined up. You can't necessarily take data from the two and, and put them together. They're not always focused on dementia. So there are actually lots of cohorts in the UK that have potentially useful information in them, but they've not necessarily been focused on dementia and, and measuring the outcomes that we would be interested in. And we need to create an environment where instead of all competing with each other, all the institutions competing with each other, we create a sort of platform for um, studies to be done at multiple centres um, to attract the pharma companies to come and spend their big money in the UK using our experimental, experimental medicine platform that I'll tell you more about. And the point of all of this is the economic challenges. Emma outlined in the previous talk. We, it, it kind of goes without saying that the, uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the burden of these diseases means that we must put some energy into trying to solve these problems. But we also need to reduce the research transaction costs. So millions, the £50 million that gets spent in every year by the UK government, we need to make sure that that's 
being spent in the best possible way so that we're not, as I say, um, reinventing each other's wheels. And we really need to de-risk this, this incredibly expensive phase three trials that are failing at the moment. So the Dementors Platform UK was put together really at lightning speed over the course of the last couple of years. And at each stage of the process, we didn't know that the next stage was coming. So the first stage was really about establishing the cohorts, what cohorts are out there that exist that can be potentially put to better use if we pull them together. The second stage was about starting to think about creating this experimental medicine platform. And then the third stage was buying all the kits that we need in order to create this, um, this multi-centre um, um, infrastructure for uh, for trials and for studies and trials and it was always designed as a partnership between academia and industry um, so that we're creating what we really want to have which is an open science environment so that we're not all competing with each other so you can think of the dpuk as being in sort of three main sections the first section is about the cohorts bringing together all of these cohorts the second section is about the developing the specialist networks and then the third section is the experimental medicine program. And I'm just going to go through each one of these and tell you a little bit more about it. So if we start with the cohorts, there are at, uh, there are at the moment something like 34 cohorts included in DPUK, but the number goes up all the time because there's no barrier to entry. If you have a cohort that you think might be useful and interesting and you're w willing to share and be part of the platform, then it's, everybody is welcome. And the cohorts are kind of... Um, uh, separated into conceptually into these three different types. So the the, the easiest one to, to think about is the pink is the pink set. These are these cohorts that have been put together specifically for dementia research. They contain very valuable um, but quite small numbers of people who perhaps carry a um, familial gene. So we know that they're likely to get dementia, um, uh, or they're specific well phenotype disease cohorts. Excuse me. Um, the second set are the, are the green ones, and these are the very large case-rich cohorts. So these, are, these contain many thousands of participants and even millions of participants in some cases, but were not necessarily originally designed to be um, for dementia research, but maybe with a little bit of extra work, we can use some of the information in there to, to good effect. And then the third set are the, are the, in, are the, um, are the, are the cohorts that have been put together deliberately for this pre-clinical stage uh, phase of, of dementia research. So these are people, healthy elderly people, who may have some kind of evidence that, uh, or, uh, of, um, of cognitive decline, but for the most part this is groups of people who've been put together with, um, with dementia research in mind, but at the moment they're still healthy. And there's a special case within this, which is the UK Biobank. The UK Biobank is an incredible resource that... Um, that's been collected over the last five to eight years of 500,000 people who are across the, uh, across the adult age range, aged between 30 and 70. And at the moment, 100,000 of them are being imaged. This is way bigger in imaging terms than we've ever conceived of before. So this is, this is going to really change the game in terms of the, the, the bringing of epidemiology into the, into the realm where we can look at complicated um, metrics from inside the brain. And very importantly, these people have all consented for recontact, which means they're potentially amenable for further studies and, uh, and trials in the future. And the Dementia Platform UK is, uh, is enhancing 
um, the UK buy a bank by re-scanning 10,000 of the 100,000 so that we'll have two time point imaging on these people. Um, and it's not been fully decided yet, but it's likely that this will be all, that these 10,000 will come from the older um, end of the, the age spectrum because um, two time point imaging is much more sensitive in terms of being able to see that decline, see that slope that I showed you earlier. Um, and these people will also have an extended cognitive battery. So this creates what we hope will be a cohort of readiness, ready for the, um, the new intervention trials when they come online. And then the second bit of the, of the platform is the specialist networks. And this has really been put together by this very large capital um, investment that the MRC have made, the UK government's made through the MRC. And the biggest chunk of this has gone to equipping the UK with um, five new PET-MR machines. So PET imaging allows you to see the, um, uh, the chemistry of the brain, the molecules in the brain. MR is the best way of seeing brain structure. If you put the two together, you have a, a new, very expensive machine that means that you can get both sets of information at the same time. There are two already in the UK, and so we'll now have a seven-site PET-MR network, which will dramatically change our ability to... Um, to um, to be, to be a great place for pharma companies to come and do their trials. If, to just uh, ex uh, explain why that's so important, many of the, um, the, the, the large and expensive failures that you might have heard about in the media over the last few years, the amyloid targeting um, drugs that have not been uh, successful in changing people's cognitive status, well, it turned out that many, in many of those trials, a lot of the um, participants didn't even have amyloid in the brain. So there was a, this was an amyloid-reducing drug that was given to people who didn't have amyloid in the brain. So, um, and you know, that, that's, um, that's a bit of a travesty, really, but the, the best way to stop that from happening again is that before you give any amyloid-busting agents, you PET image them first to make sure that the, the participants have amyloid in the brain. It's exp an expensive lesson to have learned the hard way. Um, so the, 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 the imaging network, as well as procuring um, some very new, uh, very expensive new kit, will also be focused on developing new radio ligands. So that's the chemists, that's how you attach radio labels to the um, compounds that you're interested in, like amyloid and tau, for example. Um, we need to have a... Um, that uh, we have a working group whose job it is to harmonise the way that we acquire data and analyse data, um, and then we need an, an IT infrastructure to support all of this work. The second research network is the stem cell network, and uh, Emma's very kindly done the job for me of explaining what stem cells are and, and the um, very exciting science that has rapidly grown in the last few years um, that comes from the ability to turn skin cells into neurons and then further differentiate the neurons into the specific types of neurons that are important in different diseases. So that means that rather than having to rely completely on animal models, we now have a way of having human disease models in a dish that, that, can, that can contribute, for example, to screening programs for new, um, uh, new potential new therapies. And the stem cell network is looked after by Richard Wade Martins. Um, and contains all of the major stem cell centres in the UK, including the Cambridge one that Emma um, talked about. And um, uh, within this network, all of the aspects of stem cell biology are going to be looked after. Um, and so this is a great example of bringing the community together. These centres, because this is new science, these centres would all otherwise be competing with each other. So by, by bringing them together like this, this is a really good way of showing how we can 
um, well, hopefully show that we can achieve more by, by collaborating, cooperating. And then the third um, research network is the informatics network. So informatics is, is, um, is, is one of these sort of mysterious words that's come from nowhere and now seems to be everywhere. And it, what it really means is both the technology to bring together data and to analyse data in, in, in this sort of big data world in which we're living now. And, uh, and it, so it, it's really about the mathematicians. It's, it's the pure nerds of the, of, the, um, of the medical research world that, that need to, to put together the infrastructure and then, the, and then figure out how we use it to ask the really complicated questions. And I'll, I'll show you an example of that in, in a few slides' time. Um, I've and I've, ju I've just realised I've just announced myself as a pure nerd because my name is on this slide as um, I'm looking after the imaging informatics um, network for, for DPUK. So if I just tell you what the other ones mean, so the, the core portal is, is the, means that in a couple of years' time there will be a portal, a place you can go to and you can say, okay, I have a particular research question, what cohorts are out there, what data is out there that might be able to answer my question so that I don't necessarily have to go and collect all the data again. So the, the design of the portal is happening at the Far Institute in Swansea. Clinical informatics is another really challenging problem which is trying to extract research um, useful information from electronic patient records and this, mean, this means using clever um, computer algorithms to read natural language because of course you, you might design all the forms in the world but busy clinicians don't necessarily have time to click through every box and put the information in the right places so actually most of the precious information is written in the case notes and so you have to have clever, clever algorithms that can extract useful information from case notes and that allows you to suddenly be looking at not the 100 people that you might have been able to collect careful information for, but 1,000, 10,000 people whose information might not be quite so clean and neat and tidy, but you've got 100,000 people now, so you're dealing with a different scale. So, um, uh, so that's um, a, a big part of what's happening. I'm going to tell you more about imaging in a second. Digital health is all about the, the clever stuff you can do with your mobile phones or your Fitbits or whatever it is that you can and hang on to yourself these days and all of the information that we can be collected from those. Uh, there's a genomics network led by Julie Williams in Cardiff and a brain banking network for post-mortem um, uh, analysis that's led by Seth Love in Bristol. And the informatics network uh, is, is all about bringing information together and that means that there, there, there are mo there's more than one informatics network and part of what we have to do is make sure that they all talk to each other. So I'll just give you an example of what we're doing in the imaging informatics world, and the, and the same sort of thing happens in each of the other networks. So I'll try not to bore you to tears with this, but um, there are basically three challenges that we have to, we have to solve. One is that we need to, we need to have the kit that, that was, is capable of dealing with 100,000 images, not just storing the images themselves, but being able to process them and run all of the pipelines that we've been used to developing on tens of subjects. We now need to be able to run on hundreds of, uh, of on thousands of subjects, and the compute resources required for that are, um, are, are kind of mind-blowing. But, uh, but these days, actually, that's not the biggest challenge. You know, the, the compute resources are relatively easy to come by now. And we need to expand the infrastructure for the additional 10,000 scans, but that's actually the easiest problem to solve. 
The di most difficult problem to solve is, uh, is all of the existing data. So you heard about the Whitehall cohort today, you've also heard about the 1946 birth cohort, and of the 30-ish cohorts that are in the DPUK, about 12 of them have a decent amount of imaging data. These imaging, all of these imaging data exist where the cohorts live, so they're all in sort of silos, they're all separated from each other. They were acquired on different machines with different um, uh, protocols. So we have to find ways of bringing them together so that they can be combined in meaningful ways. Um, and so creating that sort of platform is, is the biggest problem to solve. And we're going to, we're going to be doing that by... Um, Oh, actually, I'm not going to bore you with how we're doing it. <laughs> it's too detailed. You can ask me later if you want to know how we're doing it. Um, and then the, the third problem is the future. And actually, the future is relatively... If we, get, if we get the present right, if we can get number two sorted, then the future is relatively straightforward. Because in the future, we can design our experiments with the appropriate consent and the appropriate governance that data can be shared sort of um, uh, right, from the, right from the word go. And that, the future is actually already happening. We've got a couple of large multi-centre studies that have, that have been recently funded that are going to use our infrastructure. So this is the thing that I, I decided not to tell you because it's too boring, which is that we're going to do this in a federated way, so we can't just bring all the data together in some central place because the individual cohorts wouldn't necessarily have the permission or the consent in, to, in order to, to do this, so we have to create a federated network so that each, each pl place in the network has its own node so that data can be, um, the governance structure for data can be maintained. Never mind that bit. Okay, so then uh, the, the point of all of this is so that we can do the um, experimental medicine. And Dimensions Platform UK had the kind of fledgling experimental medicine platform. This is this hasn't this is the kind of um, the last bit to get going really. But uh, the, but the way that it's being thought about is in these three overlapping. Um, uh, um, sort of research areas and they, they, they map onto some of the things that Emma talked about and you'll have heard about earlier today as well. So immunity is one big area, vascular risk is another big area and then synaptic health is another big area and those three those three things, they sound like they're kind of slightly foreign concepts for dementia, but if you think about it, what we're talking about is whether the blood supply is okay, how the immune system is coping, and how the, how, and how the brain is actually working, and how the three, three things interact. So there are fledgling programs in these three um, areas. But the main sort of experimental medicine thing that has got going so far is a study called Deep and Frequent Phenotyping. So here's our cartoon again, and, and the red line, which is our challenge. Um, so um, there have been a, a whole load of studies over, over the last 20 years or so that have tried to say my measurement is the best for detecting early, the, the early stage of dementia, whichever dementia it is that happens to be your favourite. So you'll have people who are imaging specialists doing imaging experiments, people who are cognitive specialists doing cognitive experiments, people who do the, the blood-based phenotyping and CSF-based phenotyping. And actually, it's almost um, never the case that you get even two of these pieces of, of data being collected in the same sample. So deep and frequent phenotyping is, um, the other name for it is throwing the book at people. <laughs> um, so the idea here is that we're going to take a, a select group of individuals who are going to have every, um, every uh, one of each of the best measures that we know about at the moment, and a few completely novel ones thrown in, and they're going to be collected frequently. So um, uh, individuals who are participants in deep and frequent phenotyping study will have a cognitive battery, they'll have um, an MRI scan, a PET scan, a MEG scan, magnetoencephalography, they have their um, eyes scanned, they have a gait analysis, 
They have um, lumbar punctures, bloods taken, um, other physical tests. Um, and they have all of this done on day one, day two, day 30, day 90, and day 180. So it's an incredibly intensive amount of um, investigations for anybody to undergo. So you can imagine that when this was, this is, this is what the pharma companies most want we, us, us academics, uh, academic and clinicians to do. They, they want us to tell them what's the best measure for that red bit of the curve. Um, and so uh, the answer is we don't know unless we do this study. So then the funders, well, and the funders and the patient groups say, but nobody's going to be able to, to do this. This is far too much to expect anybody to do. Um, and so the first thing that we had to do was a feasibility study. And we just completed that, actually. So that was a feasibility study carried out at six centres where only four participants per centre were put through this, this rigmarole. And I can tell you that the participants had no problem whatsoever. It's, the feasibility was challenged much more by the logistics of getting the, the, by the, the research assistants, actually. The research assistants who this nearly killed, not the participants. Participants were fine. Getting, the, getting this all to happen uh, on a single day, getting everything, all the rooms lined up, all the people that you need to, to, to make this happen was far more challenging than the participants had a, had a lovely time. And this was people with early Alzheimer's disease, so that's not the challenging bit of this process. But anyway, the, it has been deemed feasible, so the full application is being written now. Okay, so what I've described today is, um, is only part of the picture. So uh, it seems like I've hopped around all over the place, but the, what it's really going to take for biomedical research to um, come up with ways of preventing dementia looks something like this. So we need all of the basic neuroscience to translate itself into both target development and the, and the really good high quality biomarkers that we need um, uh, for, for everything actually. We need the informatics and big data to pull together which, which is part of the development of the biomarkers but also part of the, the, the making best use of the resources that we already have and creating from that these cohorts of readiness who are, who are ready to be put into early phase trials, who, who have the run-in data that we already need for, um, for, to de-risk the early phase trials. And in the last two years, a lot of these boxes have been ticked in various ways. So um, Emma talked about the Drug Discovery Alliance, the ARUK have funded, and that's made a massive difference in terms of the target development for, for all of dementia. Um, what I've just meant, spent most of today talking about, the Dementia's Platform um, links, it, it talks to the informatics and readiness cohorts, and then there are some other, some other large-scale European initiatives, public-private partnerships run by something called the Innovative Medicines Initiative, and these things are like 60 million euros big. These are big lots of money and, and lots of um, uh, in-kind contributions from pharma companies and other companies. Um, and. And, and they're involved in various bits of this as well. And most recently, there's um, a new adaptive trial for um, for dementia has been has been funded called EPAD. If you like the sound of that, you can look that up. It's got all sorts of snazzy stuff online these days. And then the deep and frequent phenotyping is feeding into the discovery of of biomarkers. So th this is a this is a, this is kind of a very very ambitious set of things that we're putting together. And of course, it's not without very significant challenges um, and uh, this is a lovely slide that I've taken from uh, a meeting that I was at recently from the uh, OECD and the Oxford Internet Institute where they put together some of the challenges for open science 
I think um, I think what I think the era that we're moving into is is has, will be characterised by being open science. So we've had we've had decades of people making amazing discoveries in our field, but only in their little silos, in their little pyramid structures, usually one PI, their research group, working away at their particular problem. And I think that to, to make a significant impact in this disease, we have to think again about that. And I think that open science, and if you're given the grant to collect data, then your imperative is to share that data as quickly as possible so that the best can be made of it by the, by the whole community. Um, and there, 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 I'm not going to go through each of these challenges, but there are some significant, uh, there are some significant funding challenges. Um, you can't necessarily assume that the appropriate consent has been collected from, um, from participants in the, in the, when, when cohorts were originally conceived. And you can see that this, is, this has been conceptualised as an iceberg. So the technology challenge being the tip of the iceberg, really. We, the it's, not, it's not that easy to, to, um, to pull data together in terms of the technological challenge. But actually, that's in some ways the least of our problems. So I'm going to leave you with um, uh, with something a little bit different. Who knows what this is? Yeah, it's the Large Hadron Collider. So um, Large Hadron Collider uh, was is uh, was the um, is the result of something that high energy physics community, the entire high energy physics community. Have, have achieved by all working together. So this is a it, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the LHC is a collaboration between 10,000 scientists and engineers um, from over 100 countries. It came, it was, it was conceived, it was, it, the, this community decided that there was no other way they were going to be able to solve their problems other than to have a Large Hadron Collider in 1984. And I think one of the nicest bits about this story is that they, they actually dug the tunnel pretty quickly. There's 27 kilometres big ring that was dug under Geneva. They actually dug that in the, in the late 80s. At that point, they still didn't know what the experiments would be or indeed what the particle accelerator, how it would be designed. So they already, you know, they, they as a community, they said, we've just got to do this. We're going to dig the tunnel anyway, even though we don't know what the answers are yet. And um, so they, they designed the, 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 the LHC itself and the experiments in the 90s. And then it took 10 years to build the kit itself. And then, as you know, the, um, the discovery of the Higgs, the probable discovery of the Higgs boson was announced in 2012. And it cost about £6 billion. So this is an enormous investment. But this was an entire uh, scientific community coming together and, and together deciding that they're not going to go for personal glory, they're not going to worry about their, their next research grant, they're going to all work together because they care so much about finding the Higgs boson together that it's worth it. It's worth their collective 30, year, um, 30 years of their careers to do it. And the, and the Higgs boson paper, when it came out, has 2,900 authors. I love that. I just think I think that's what we should all be doing. <laughs> so I'm 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 uh, I'm telling you this because you're the next generation. So this is it's not going to be us. It's not going to be me that solves this. It's going to be you lot that when you come through, creating the LHC for dementia research that's going to make the difference. Thank you very much. <laughs>